This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Good opportunity doesn't always mean an elk in the back of the truck um, because you're going to be learning a lot out there. And I think we just need to keep that perspective of good times in the woods come at you from a lot of different angles and they're not uh, punching the tag at, at the end of the day but certainly want a reasonable opportunity to do so as well since 1936 the national wildlife federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of american history and to protect our sporting traditions this podcast explores our history our values and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle. This week we have a great guest uh, to talk about a maybe not so great subject in part, uh, some issues that are happening up in Montana that kind of threaten the opportunity to hunt and fish. Uh, up in Montana. So we're going to, well, just to hunt, actually, <laughs> I, I should, I'm remiss to say fish. I think this is really about hunting. We're going to dive in on that. Um, my guest today is Ryan Callahan. He's the conservation director of the Meat Eater. How you doing today, Ryan? Doing well, buddy. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm glad we get the opportunity to talk. Uh, I wish it was under a little bit better circumstances with this bill, but, uh, it's good to catch up, and we'll talk about some more stuff too. So, thanks for joining today. I'll just uh, introduce Ryan. He's a mediator's director of conservation. He's also a national board member for the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. He's he grew up in Montana. He's back in Montana now, and he's just been a, a passionate guy out there for the hunting and fishing community for for quite some time. A lot of people know him, so I think folks will be pretty familiar with a lot of his work. And Ryan, we always start with what we've been doing outside. So I'll give you the opportunity to 
to tell us just a little bit about what you're up to lately. I know you, you get around and get a lot of hunting in, so maybe you can share some of those stories. Oh, I uh, just got back from the Sacramento Valley and uh, got a hunt waterfowl for their last weekend down there and um, pretty wild, like in uh, sunken blinds and rice checks and you kind of have a big, big water feel and it's, it's really fascinating down there because it's all, you know, every inch of what you see has been, uh, touched by man, right? Like, so it was a giant, giant floodplain. And now that floodplain is where all the farms are. And so there's a, a, you know, there's, uh, almost a hundred years of elevated roads, dike, levee, weir construction down there. Um, and it kind of came to this fact. It was like a wild raging river that's now been tamed and they use the floodwaters, but it's, uh, you know, it's all, it's all managed as, as best they can. It's, it's, it's really interesting, but the rice fields, down there are the closest thing to a wetland. Like they're where the old wetlands used to be. Uh, and they resemble a wetland in a lot of ways, but they're rice fields, you know, they're, there's, there's somebody's sure. farm field. So um, there it's like a surrogate marsh. Yeah. And how's it look with the water situation there? I mean, they've been so damn dry, you know, the last couple of years, the fires last year were incredible, obviously. And and now they're getting hammered. What did it look like? So, yeah, I mean, prior to when I called my buddy Sean in December, he's like, man, we don't have any water. I said, well, that's not looking good for, for birds. And, uh, he's on the dry side. They have a wet side and a dry side. And basically what that means is the wet side, they, they get a pole gates and, and funnel water out of the fields, more or less. Uh, you would say, or out of the river into the fields. And then there's a dry side where they, they pump water out of the river and, and into the fields. So he's on the pumping side of things. And uh, he's got an outfitter that leases some of his place. And, and so he uh, paid to, get some water pumped onto his field so he could start going. Um, and then right before we got down there, they're like, Oh, it's an atmospheric river coming through and we're going to get, you know, two months worth of rain and two days. And, and yeah, it was, it was wet. It wasn't, wasn't crazy. We kind of came in on the tail end of the very first storm, but, um, it's just, it's funny, right? It's like, when I was down there, there's water everywhere. And had I been down there a few weeks ago, it would have been, uh, the opposite. Yeah, it's interesting. I figured it might be some interesting dynamics with, uh, what we've seen this year. Uh, well, good. I, I haven't been doing nearly as much outside as I would like. Uh, just been, uh, I, I live bordering some BLM land, spending a decent amount of time just getting out on little hikes out there and a little time scouting the river lately. The ice is starting to peel off. We've had some warm times here. So uh, the spring's an awesome time to fish, and it always gets pretty good about this time of year. And then I've been working with my boy. 
he's about to buy himself his first bow. Uh, he's been spending some time looking up which one. We have a, an amazing shop here called Western Archery. They're actually a huge outfitter for a lot of places around the country. And there's a fellow out there that's been really good to him and uh, we got him pretty well set up. He's about to buy his first bow. So he's been working a couple little jobs and he's awesome. ready to pull the trigger and pretty stoked about it. So we're looking at tags and, and getting his bow ready and that's been pretty fun. So anyway, that's good. Let's get more outside time. I think is the, is the gist there. Oh, so yeah, there's, <laughs> there's just, there's no, no substitute for outside time. And it, it yeah, I need to do do better about like typically I come home and I go on lockdown and try to get all the work the work work stuff done, the in in office yeah. stuff done. And I need to um start sleeping a little bit less and get more outside time in. <laughs> I've spent way too much damn time in front of a computer, I'll tell you that. I've had my I've had like two years worth of fill, but uh can't complain. I saw something the other day that said I, you know, it was, it was mentioning instead of you have to go to work, you get to go to work. So yeah, I think in these times that's pretty important. Lucky to have a job, lucky to be working in conservation. So thankful for that. Absolutely. Uh, well, Ryan, one of the main reasons we wanted to have you on is is to talk about this SB Senate Bill 143 in Montana. It's a bill that's really aimed at allocating a lot more of the tags to outfitters in Montana. Uh, for, for out-of-state licenses and so kind of constricts how do-it-yourselfer guys from other states have the opportunity to hunt in Montana so you've been a pretty vocal critic of it um, and obviously Montana grew up in Montana and know the issues there pretty well talk a little bit about your opinion on on what you're seeing here with this bill and what it does uh, it is a complicated bill uh oddly enough you know if you talk to some people it's the most simple thing in the world and it's a win-win-win for everybody and if but if you sit there and and you start reading through the bill over and over again a lot of a lot of questions come up so um basically what this does is it takes we've had uh roughly 17,000 non-resident tags for sale every year and those tags will, if this passes in 2022, for the, starting in the 2022 season, there'll be a early application period for uh, land or for outfitter-sponsored hunters. So if you're going with an outfitter, you can apply using the outfitter's uh, outfitting number, and uh, and that's your implied intention to hunt with that outfitter. And you will receive preference, which means as the bill's written currently, and it will be amended um, for sure, as it's written currently, 60% of all those non-resident tags will be allocated to the outfitters for that early application period whatever tags are not used of that 60% will then go back into the general pool for non-residents who are applying without an outfitter. So the, and this is all based off of historical data 
And if you go and, and look at the past and you exclude uh, this crazy COVID season, there would be no change as far as non-resident uh, draw odds. However, you know, you, you got to take into consideration the past. Uh, but that's not the whole picture, right? So the issue is, let's say we have 17,001 non-resident hunters. That one extra non-resident hunter goes into the early draw and pulls a tag. That's 16,999 non-resident tags left in the general pool and 17,000 hunters applying for one less tag, meaning your draw odds uh, are reduced. Um, yeah, very simple stuff. The difference between years past, primarily like 2015, 16, 17, where a lot of this data comes from is, you know, those weren't years where we were selling all the tags in the draw and people were, were able to buy leftover tags. I think eventually we, we did sell them out most years, but, um, they didn't get sold in the draw. But if you look at the 2020 season, we had, uh, an extra 10,000 applicants. So, you know, that's, that's a pretty wow. giant wow. swing. Um, the basis of SB 143 is really on uh, economics, right? It's like, what is the most economically responsible thing for the recreational community in Montana? And according to a study out of the University of Montana, outfitting in the state of Montana is associated with roughly 10% of our recreational income in the state, right? And we figured that to be about $3 billion overall. And the Good outfitting number. portion of that's about, you know, about 10% of 3 billion. So, you know, we're talking a lot of cash, but we're also talking that outfitting in the state of Montana really runs a wide gamut of businesses as well. So that's, fishing, whitewater rafting, uh, dog sleds, and hunting, right? And hunting by itself can be, you know, very, you know, as, as people know, you know, you can go to a five-star star resort of hunting, and, yeah. and it seems like the sport is paying money. Um, and, and then you can do things very bare bones. So that, that runs a, a wide gamut. But what this study showed is that an outfitted uh, recreator is spending five times more than a do-it-yourself recreator, um, which seems hard to believe. But the reality is, is we have one study. So that's, that's what we got to work on. And that's uh, how this bill's being lobbied. The, sure. you know, the scary parts really are if 
So there's, you know, the us versus them kind of economic argument as well, right? So the outfitter sponsored tags are going to be $200 more expensive, um, but you're going to be guaranteed a tag if you go in that pool, right? So you can see, you know, that's an incentive for people to go with an outfitter. And then you got a lot of folks who are like, oh, I can never afford an outfitter or an outfitted experience. Um, and so they're going to wait and pay the 200 less bucks and get in the general pool and see what happens, take their chances. Then, um, we get to, I think the basis of this, which is, do we provide incentives to anyone for public wildlife. And this is obviously like a very hot button issue because it also includes landowners and, you know, Montana is largely private. Like there is a lot of private land. The checkerboard system here is a nightmare. And 70% private, right? I believe that's right. So we have a landowner, tags, landowner sponsored tags, um, you know, based on acreage. So, uh, it's on a first come first serve basis, but if you have one section, 640 acres, um, in theory, you're guaranteed a tag. If you're on the list early in a first come first serve basis. Um, if I had that 640, I could sponsor you, Aaron, and you would apply in that pool for a tag and likely get it. And then, you know, your odds go up with every section you have. So the larger amount of land you have, right. Because the more wildlife you support, um, the more strength you have in that, in that pool. And it's capped at 15 applicants per landowner. Yeah. I want to make it clear too, you know, we're not, trying to degrade the the contributions of private landowners. I mean, there's a lot of awesome private landowners out there who are are really good land stewards and, you know, supporting hunting and supporting wildlife. Um I think what the the thing about this is is, you know, what does it mean for the average hunter and and I want to place it within the larger context as well. You know, kind of the opportunity uh, you know, loss or gain with a lot of these decisions that, you know, I think for a lot of guys just fall, go under the radar, you know? So I think what it'd be interesting to do is kind of pick this apart for the average hunter and maybe give folks just a little background on the public trust and the North American model and kind of how we, the way things are set up and and why that's generally uh, been a boon to, to average hunter. Um, you want to dive into that a little bit? Well, if you look at the numbers, the actual actual acreage in the lower 48, certainly, you know, you could boil it down to private land, public wildlife. So we have wildlife that is managed by the states and it's managed for everyone. That's that's like the game we're playing. Um, we all collectively own it. We all collectively own it. Yeah. Um, However, the reality is is a lot of our wildlife spends a lot of time on private land that is not necessarily 
open or accessible to the public. And therein lies the rub. So um, these landowner tags in the state of Montana are based around a, you know, basically um, described to me at one point as a thank you to the landowner for being good stewards. And, um, you know, at face value, that's great. However, in my opinion, you certainly from a state management agency perspective, the more ways you divide this pie of public wildlife, the less strength you have to manage wildlife on the scale that it needs to be managed on, right? Like a herd and population level scale. And where we see this really coming into play, I think is when we start talking chronic wasting disease, um, you know, overloads population densities yeah. in areas where there are, there is no access to private land and we're seeing um, like hot button issue in the state of Montana, lots and lots of elk hold up on private land for the majority of the season. And then we start adding in shoulder seasons, uh, which are early, like ahead of the general season or late after the general season, uh, trying to provide that opportunity for hunters, yes, to get some meat in their freezer, but also to actually diminish herd numbers uh, in some of these areas. So basically when we start giving a preference for tags, the economic benefit for that can uh, disincentivize someone to play that larger landscape ideal, right? It's like, well, I get paid a lot of money for these tags. It behooves me to uh, keep the fences up and not let anybody on. Um, now, I will tell you, down here in the Ruby Valley, uh, I saw a lot of really good landowner participation when we we have, uh, still going on this month, uh, chronic wasting disease um, situation down in the Ruby Valley where uh, Montana Fish and Game, through their studies, found that over 10% of the deer that coming in had CWD, uh, and then that number increased. And all the, seems like a lot of the landowners in that area were very open to uh, figuring out, you know, beneficial ways to letting public on to reduce deer numbers in that valley. So that was cool to see. Yeah, we could do a whole, whole nother podcast on CWD and landscape level management issues, migration. There's a lot of things there that I think you kind of touched on. Um you know, let's talk too a little bit about the ballot initiative 161 that passed in 2010 and how, you know, this may be, you know, the antithesis of that in some ways, or, you know, unpack that for folks, what that was and, and exactly what it said and, and how this plays into that. So 161, and you'll excuse me, I don't have um, 
161 in front of me, but 161 was very, very similar. So you had outfitter allocated tags and, um, you know, it is a great thing. Some would say a necessary thing for the outfitting business. Um, because you're not reliant on a pure lottery system. If you can imagine having a business where you don't know if anybody's going to show up until, you know, four or five months before the season starts and you have a, you know, a backcountry type of situation, there's a lot of prep involved. Um, you know, outfitting is a high overhead game. So that's, that's some serious stress. Um, so that's what, 161 and 143, 161 did and 143 is looking to do is is show uh, these outfitters the uh, ability to forecast a little bit. Some assurances that if people sign the dotted line and they're going to hunt with you, that they get a tag and they're able to do so. Um, 161 was, a, you know right when I was guiding in the state of Montana and the benefit that I saw from 161 outside of that is that the funding for our block management was coming out of 161. So the increased uh, outfitter sponsored tag prices, that increased cash went to a public access program and block management in the state of Idaho, or I'm sorry, in the state of Montana, uh, is not open to outfitters. So it can't be, can't be leased. There's not an opportunity to double dip there. So it's money coming out of an outfitter program going into public access that, uh, outfitters can't take advantage of. Now, yeah, go ahead. Oh, so the difference in 143 the language, in my opinion, handicaps the ability for that additional fee to do the most good for public land, public access in the state of Montana, particularly the language that says that private property is not eligible for the program. And this is built around really like our checkerboard system, right? So getting access to private land that in order to get access to the big chunk of public land behind it. So one piece blocks another piece. Um, if you have a willing landowner on the private piece that blocks a public piece, but they don't have a lease, an active lease on that public piece, they're not eligible for the program, which face value is kind of like a good neighbor thing, right? It's like if you, Aaron, have a grazing lease uh, or that's part of your outfitting area and I supply the general public access to that piece and I get paid to do so, that could possibly affect how you're operating uh, and you and I probably wouldn't be the best of friends to some level, right? Um, But the problem is, the it is just not a competitive landscape if you can imagine the only people that you have to 
solicit are the ones who have the most to lose. They already have the access to the bigger piece of public land. And they have an active lease on it. Why would they ever take the maximum of $15,000 a year from the state of Montana to provide access to the public? You know, prime elk and deer habitat in the state of Montana, uh, the price on that's been going up for a long time. Yeah, price of a hunt could be more than 15, one of them, if, if it's the right spot. Yeah, if it's if it's the right spot and somebody's got that big bull or big buck named for you, there's there's yeah. folks out there with the pocketbook to do that for sure. Well, you know, I guess the point I wanted to make about 161 was it basically did some of the same things as this bill and it was uh overwhelmingly rejected by the voters and, you know, to me I think, you know, it's it's always a strange situation when you're you're doing, you know, wildlife management, my ballot initiative, but it is the will of the people there to say, we don't want this, you know, situation. And it's kind of coming back around. I know they're not the exact same thing, but just wanted folks to understand that, you know, not, I guess that was 11 years ago, the vo- the voting public in Montana decided they didn't want something very similar to this. Um, and so there, there is an interplay there. Um, I think the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Ryan, and, and we should talk about is just kind of, you know, the general, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a trend because I think all of us in the conservation world are getting wiser to it and, and doing more about it and letting folks know, but kind of the efforts to privatize hunting and, you know, privatize public lands and how these two things mingle. Um, and I know there's some access issues within this uh, SB 143, um, you know, you talked a little bit about those, but if we can kind of dive in a little bit to the, to that interplay between privatizing hunting and public lands and, and, you know, kind of how this fits within all of that. Oh yeah. You know, it's certainly my belief and I said it before, but not very well or succinctly. If you incentivize someone who has access to tags to play on the open market, go to the highest bidder with those tags, then you're disincentivizing them to play a part of wildlife management in their state. Um, You're not going to persuade them to be a part of, uh, you know, private land public access programs. Um, You, you know, you're losing your, your pull. And I think when we get, to these situations of having lots and lots of animals staying on private land, breaking their normal routines, you know, we're, we're really losing. We're going to lose the good opportunities that we have. You know, I think we have a lot of good opportunities right now in in, uh, the state of Montana on private or on public lands. Um, and through our public access programs. But if, you know, it's kind of a market will decide thing, Aaron, if it just becomes too good to lock it up and you have some guarantees, like 
you know, so in the state of Montana, one, one bit of confusion here because it, it happens, right? So as a private landowner, you are not able to sell tags. But you are able to pro- provide a guaranteed tag if, if you're a big enough landowner and, and you got your ducks in a row and you get your paperwork in on time. So um, now we see kind of another market emerge through these recreational properties that are providing like a VRBO style hunt. But they're not providing the hunt, right? They're saying you have a, a trespass rights to the whole place you get a place to stay and you get a tag yeah by default then yeah yeah which man i mean no blame whatsoever i mean that's that's certainly the model that i'd probably play with if if i had a couple of sections to my name yeah i think you know one of the other things with this is you know, we've seen bills across the the country, the West particularly, you know, where either either the land is, you know, harder to get to, uh, it's landlocked and access issues are there, or, you know, like we're seeing here, it kind of leans it towards uh, opportunities for only the, only for those who have, you know, pretty deep pockets, right? I mean, there's not that many of us that could go pay 10, 15, 20 grand to go have a hunt. Um, and, and then, you know, if you see things like in Idaho, the last couple of years, we've seen bills where, you know, it basically says no net loss of private land. They try to pass a bill that. So if a, a willing private landowner wants to go, you know, make a deal with the BLM or, you know, a land, uh, a land agency to put something back in the public domain, you know, perhaps to gain access to a bigger chunk of land, the state of Idaho or, or some legislatures, legislators, I should say, have tried to run bills that would prohibit that, right? Um, which, you know, the general trend I think is true is that it's there. It's harder for guys nowadays uh, basically to get tags and to, and to access, you know, have access. And we know one of the number one reasons people leave hunting or don't take up hunting is because they don't have a place to go. Um, and I think that's the disturbing trend in my mind, you know, that I see a bill like this that kind of heads us that direction. Um, you know, less place to go and less opportunity. So it, it fits within some of these other things we're seeing across the West that are pretty nefarious to, to hunters in my mind and, and pretty much a, a threat to our, you know, our opportunities. So, yeah. And you know, according to the Montana Outfitter and Guides Association, there's no precedent for that in the state of Montana. Historically, it, it has not happened. So if it hasn't happened in the past, it's not going to happen in the future. It's kind of the official statement. Um, but, you know, we have seen the outfitter preference kind of run amok in the state of New Mexico. Um, We've yeah, seen, we should talk about that. They passed a bill similar to this, and now they're trying to clean it up a bit. Yeah, they are. We'll we'll see what happens down there. Um, that uh, falls under Senate Bill three twelve, which is in this uh, first session of twenty twenty one. 
and yeah, it eliminates the outfitter and guide special draw license set aside. Revising the special draw license percentages for residents and non-residents. And, and narrowing conditions for landowner taking or killing of animals on private land. And this is, yeah, just to be clear, this is in New Mexico. The New Mexico Wildlife Heritage Act, Senate Bill 312. Yeah, so it is interesting timing that we have this bill happening in New Mexico and this SB 143 happening in the state of Montana. There's There's some real similarities there. Yeah, they're trying to basically reverse the effects of something similar to the Montana bill. Yeah, I got to give a shout similar. out too to our our buddies at New Mexico Wildlife Federation, Jesse DeBell and, oh, and company down there. Yeah, kicking butt. I think, uh, yeah, well, uh, Jeremy Romero is going to be doing some some yeah. uh, helping out for us here in the future. Yeah, that. Jeremy's a Jeremy's a staffer of National Wildlife Federation too. Heck of a guy. Really like Jeremy. I know you guys have done some. I think it was an oryx hunt. Oh yeah, Steve did. did, Yeah, yep, yep. Man, I'm still applying for that thing. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, so it's it's a tough deal, man. I mean, we know economics speak, and the data that we have right now says this is how much outfitters bring to the state of Montana. Um, the effect, you know, if we follow the trends that we have been following on the resident hunter will, you know, probably be negligible, maybe, but there's some scary things in in the back and forth that are in print, um, that the Montana Outfitter and Guides Association is, is, uh, trying to address there where they're, they're saying that no outfitters, no outfitted hunters are in competition with resident hunters. Um, there's a trend uh, that there's more outfitters operating on private land than public land. If you adhere to that, then yes. But, you know, I walk through outfitters camps every single year. I mean, every year and and have done so for many years. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've never had anything but friendly chit chat and never a, a crossword and I've helped them on occasion and they've helped me on occasion, you know? So, um, I don't want to see this thing, you know, turn a hunter away from other folks that are out there really enjoying our big chunks of public land. You know, I, I don't it's like that point. at yeah. all. Um, the fact of the matter is certainly for a public land outfitter, if they play their cards really, really well, they'll have something to sell by the time they retire, but they're, they're not making buku bucks out there on, on public land. Um, they're out there cause they want to be. So I, I certainly don't like, uh, some of the, the back and forth that I'm seeing around SB 143, because some of it does boil down to, uh, you know, greedy resident hunters and greedy outfitters, and the non-residents are kind of dropping in there in between on on some of these conversations. So, yeah, we we could use less of pitting 
pitting one another against each other, especially like you said, the the sportsmen and women that are out there, you know, likely 98% of the things we, we would talk about when we ran into one another out there in the field would be, you know, pretty dang similar and, and we'd be happy to talk and we'd have a lot of similar interests. So oh, that's a yeah. good point. No, the, if you drew the Venn diagram, the things that, that make you smile are probably going to make the person that you bump into smile too, you know? So, um, the, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. You cannot say that this bill will not affect draw odds. Um, it's wouldn't currently looking at past math and again, throwing out the 2020 draw season, but how exactly it does is certainly not quite as straightforward. You know, you need a larger percentage of non-residents applying for this outfitter sponsored tag early, and you need a general increase in uh, non-resident participation in the, in the draw too. So you need an increase in overall participants and you need a, you know, the majority of that increase to go into the outfitter sponsored tags. Um, you know, hunting and fishing saw a big boom in this 2020 yeah, year. So it, to me, it seems more than likely. Yeah. This is a little bit weedy and, you know, I'm glad we get to kind of unpack it a bit for, for listeners, but, um, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where there's a lot of, there's a lot of detail and there's little, there's different, you know, iterations in different States with stuff like this, but kind of just another point to, you know, (laughs) for our, for our sporting lives, man, we got to pay attention and and get engaged and make sure when these decisions are happening, they're not just happening under our noses without us kind of participating. So, um, you know, one, one thing, Ryan, you know, the hearing for this thing, the first hearing was Wednesday. I believe it was Wednesday. Yeah. And I don't think there was any action on it, but you know, what do you see happening next? Where's this thing going in your eyes? So this is going to be actively amended. The, you know, uh, Mac Menard had a, you know, great long, long talk with him. Um, He's the head of Montana Outfitter and Guides Association yesterday. I mean, he makes a super strong case for the economics of supporting this bill, right? Um, He's got facts, but, you know, it's an odd thing too. If you're a fiscally conservative Republican, which we have many of in the state of Montana, um, you have to look at this as a very large business incentive that you're not going to give to any other business in the state of Montana. Uh, I'll tell you the marketing that we as meat eater do around hunting and fishing. I could make a pretty strong case that we should have some uh, meat eater sponsored tags. <laughs> yeah, I'd take uh, a couple. <laughs> right, because I mean it's not gonna not gonna happen though. So, um, you know, but you know this. In my opinion, this thing's not coming from some place of evil. It's a bunch of people who want to be able to forecast their businesses. And and I totally get that. It's just, in my mind, for the longevity of wildlife management, the long game here in the state of Montana, 
I, I have a hard time seeing as it's the best move. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think overall, as I kind of alluded to a couple of times, we just got to do what we can do to conserve public opportunity and public access. I mean, I, I don't, there's, they're not making more land and they're not making, you know, more critters. So I think the, the opportunity, uh, you know, I have two, two young kids too. And I, I try to look into the future and think about what we can do for them and how much they love being out, how much my boy just absolutely loves hunting. And I can't imagine, you know, it's already hard enough mule deer, particularly in Colorado, it's getting hard, really hard to get tags. You know, their population has been declining There's a lot more people hunting, you know, it, it, it's hard for me to, you know, something I grew up hunting and I'm telling my boy, you know, I don't know, you know, he didn't get a tag last year for mule deer. And, uh, that's crazy to me thinking how many mule deer there are and, and how much that opportunity was just kind of a given. Oh yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we got to be diligent. Um, well, really when I was down in the Sacramento Valley, right, there's nothing but pintails. Like the pintails are flying around like crazy. Um, nothing but is very strong, right? You shot widgeon and teal and gadwall and uh, probably the world's most beautiful shoveler you've ever seen. Um, everything's full plumage down there. And it's just like, we don't get nice. like, it's, you don't get puddle ducks to the end of the year up here in Montana that look like that. They're gorgeous. So, um, you know, and, and the, it's one pintail per person per day, right? Possession limit of three in the state of California. Right. And there's a lot of people who are like, I cannot, it makes no sense. It makes no sense that we can only shoot one pintail. Um, obviously migratory birds and they're coming in from someplace and they're going someplace. So it's not necessarily the state of California's pintail, but, um, you know, holistic approach is the reality. You know, CWD came into the state of Montana from somewhere. It didn't start here. Yep. I think, unfortunately, we have to say it came from Colorado, if we know the history. <laughs> CSU up there in Fort Collins. Uh, well, let's jump to some other things. You know, we wanted to talk Meat Eater a little bit. You headed over from First Light to be the conservation director at Meat Eater a couple years back now. What, what's your main role over there? What are you doing? I know you have a podcast and some other stuff, but, but give us a, a little slice of what's going on over there. Yeah, Cal's Week in Review. Um... So we, yeah, Cal's Week in Review is, is the weekly podcast, conservation news, try to make it happy and fun and uh, get some good calls, calls to action in there. So nice. for example, if you're a non-resident hunter and you're not a big fan of uh, Senate Bill 143, I think the best thing that you can do is call the Montana Fish and Game Commission. Uh, I have all those folks listed in, in a post, probably wearing the exact same thing on my Instagram handle, which is old Cal 406. Um, <laughs> at least, and, at least we won't be showing you again. So you don't have to worry about, you know, being in the same outfit. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a tiny closet. Um, and let them know how much money you spend in the state of Montana, because the economic analysis that they have at the university of Montana says that a non-resident unguided hunter a DIYer spends about 400 bucks in the state of montana um i don't know how you get here and uh not spend 400 get your, bucks get your rig across the state it's a big one 
it's a big one. So got to buy some uh, gas and food. That would be an example of a call to action on that you'd hear on Cal's week in review. Um, you know, try to play both sides and, and, and tell you, tell you what's happening out there in the great world of conservation. And, uh, it's been super fun and just try to get in the good wildlife facts and, um, you know, talk about all this crazy stuff, how, you know, state of Colorado can pass wolves and hallucinogens, <laughs> you know, on, on citizens initiative. So, uh, it's pretty funny. I like how your voice perks up when you talk about it too. I, I like the passion, the enthusiasm. That's cool. Well, the little sister's a cop down there, so I know she's got to deal with it. <laughs> not me. Oh, uh, you even have the inside game there. You get to hear a little bit extra. Yep, exactly. Um, and then under like the director of conservation hat here at the meat eater, we had a really cool program last year uh, called the meat eater land access initiative. And we looked at a bunch of opportunities to expand public access in, in the United States and, you know, actually like took submissions and kind of ended up with almost a grant program. And we cut a big check, did some fundraising, cut a big check and, um, was able to help out in the state of Maine on a cool property called Shiloh Pond in outside of Kingsfield, Maine. And the that's not the one that you guys bought and we're going to restore and then sell or something like that. I, well, my, my boy's a huge fan of the show and he's t- telling me stuff and he mentioned that's something back like that. 40. That's in Michigan. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. We have so many Michiganders that work for us. You know, we got to do something in Michigan. Um, Actually, I do recall. Yeah, that was Michigan. Now that now that you say it, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Shiloh Pond is the first piece of of public land the township of Kingsfield, Maine owns, and the the public access private land story in Maine is a is a fascinating one. And I'll uh, have a show video series. So there's a video series that goes along with the Cal's Week in Review podcast. Um, that tries to highlight some of this interesting stuff in a little more in-depth way. So state of Maine's depending on what stat you look at between like timbered land and just pure public access is 94% private, but there's de facto trespass in the state of Maine. So if it's not posted, you can go hunt on it, fish on it. uh, I believe even, cut a little wood here and there. So, and Maine's big wood cutting state. Hmm. So it's really interesting. It's got this giant history, right? It's like the place that everybody out of New York and Boston went up to recreate. Um, but it's, it's not public, it's private. So it's giant, giant old timber company land. And so we went and hiked around there and, and uh, shot some rough grouse and nice. got a couple of ducks. It was good, good time. And, uh, interesting having that big public land feel all on private land. Yeah. And it seems like you guys are proliferating all the time, introducing new stuff and 
Uh, got my boy one of the cookbooks for the for Christmas. Nice there's cooking stuff. There's there's all the, kinds of stuff. The survival handbook, the meteor survival handbook, is is very very cool. You got to check that one out. Yeah, I'll have a, I'll have to have a look. My boy's probably your number one fan, so I mostly hear about it from him. Nice. He tells me, "Oh, you got to see this. You got to." And then so we watch it again. He he tells me the new season is coming out here in a week or two, so he's ready. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we're actually taking off this afternoon to start filming another episode. So I'm jumping in with Steve and uh, our buddy Chester, and uh, you'll you'll have to just you'll see about it on the social feed. We can't tell anybody. Okay. Little kind of small sneak preview there, but with no details, good teaser. Yeah. Um, so how do you, you know, your, your conservation director, how do you guys decide, you know, how do you get into the conservation issues and is there a priority way you prioritize things or kind of just as they cross your desk or give us a little insight? Oh, as you know, can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, as you know, you know, it's, it's very hard to work in the conservation field because every issue is important and everybody that you talk to is extremely passionate about their issue. Um, but you can only do so much. So it, it is, uh, very tough trying to find what you think and hope is an appropriate mix of, uh, national and and state level issues to raise awareness around, maybe do some fundraising around, help out somehow, some way, um, you know, elevating the message to a national audience on a lot of state level issue stuff is, is super, super important. Um, and so advocacy is, is our number one tool for sure. Yeah. You guys have been, as good as anybody about kind of having a commercial, you know, a commercial interest, but, you know, you utilizing that voice, uh, to help promote conservation and, and get people engaged in a lot of these issues, you know, like we're talking about right now. So appreciate that. Um, appreciate the, the kind of culture y'all bring to hunting too. really the food, the cooking, the, the conservation. I think it's, I think it's a lifestyle that a lot of us, kind of know and understand and appreciate that, that there's good folks like y'all spreading that around. It's pretty important that, 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 that face of our, the thing we care about so much is, is what a lot of folks see, you know, unfortunately, uh, the sporting world often gets spoiled by the bad actors. And so we got to do our part to, to show oh, the, the good face of it. The bad actors are, uh, unfortunately more fun and interesting to look at, you know, so more, <laughs> yeah. Or entertaining for a national audience, an uninformed national audience. Um, what's what's going on on the National Wildlife Federation front? Oh man, we got a lot of things. Uh, you know, new administration, new Congress, so kind of a reset time. I think you're seeing a lot of things out there in the news. You know, a new priority with with infrastructure and jobs and addressing climate. Um, you know trying to do that with, you know, restore our infrastructure and create better resilience to, to natural disasters and fires and floods and all that kind of stuff, uh, perhaps by creating new jobs. So we're really interested in that, seeing, seeing how, you know, maybe bringing back something like the, 
the Civilian Conservation Corps to address a lot of those issues and tackle some of the biggest, you know, issues like, you know, Mississippi River, for instance, what kind of restoration could we do there? We have a big campaign down there called Vanishing Paradise. Uh, it's a big coalition of about something around 30 guides and outfitters uh, that work duck hunting and fishing for redfish and sea trout and all of that uh, out on the Delta. The Delta has been a, a troubled place, unfortunately, a lot of just kind of getting it both ways, right? Mississippi yep. does, does crazy stuff. They've, they've pulled out a lot of the sediment. So the Delta has been shrinking that way. Then the huge hurricanes come in and knock the Delta down even harder. Uh, so we're seeing some pretty big impacts there and trying to address those and hope we can do a little bit more with, with this new administration's kind of focus on, on doing restoration and resilience work. Uh, another shout out to just recently started a podcast called Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. Had a 40-year guide and outfitter, Ryan Lambert uh, from Cajun Fishing Adventures as our first guest, telling us a lot about what's happening down there and, and what he's seeing and what we need to do. And we'll be doing those those some more here. We've had, we've done oh, Louisiana is so a, a fascinating place to talk to people yeah. about right? Climate change. I mean, talk to people who uh, you would not uh, put on the spectrum of anything environmental, right? Like some of those Cajun folks down there. Uh, you're not going to see eye to eye on, on a handful of things, but they are out there every single day and they have seen yeah. how rapid the changes are in, in their home, in the place where they go and hunt and catch food all the time and make a living off of hunting and catching food or showing other people how to hunt and catch food. And if you go fish or hunt with somebody down there, it's like, you see that, that used to be this, you see this, that used to be that. And it's Listen just to this podcast. You can hear that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just this litany of how fast this place is changing. Yeah. He tells a story in the podcast of, you know, driving straight out into the, into the Delta there. And knowing where to turn here and there and acting like you go here and you go there and, and, and it shows on the map, but it doesn't exist anymore, right? Like the maps haven't even caught up with the fact that the land loss is so great and places where when he was a kid, you know, just completely underwater by miles now, you know, so yeah. it, it's, it's a troubling scene down there, but you know, I think it's the right time to kind of tackle it. It'd be cool. One of the things we're, we're promoting an NWF is let's put people to work doing this stuff. You know, there's a lot of people out of work right now. Let's kind of reinstitute conservation as part of our national narrative, you know, and conservation is so uniting, as you said, you know, all these different kinds of people from all these different walks of life. Yet when you get to taking care of the ducks and the fish and that everybody kind of jumps up and, and wants to see that happen because it's part of our life and uh, really kind of what makes us all tick in a lot of ways even even folks who don't hunt and fish you know nobody wants to go think of the delta you know with no fish or no wildlife that's just a sad scene so oh we'll be yeah. looking at that in a lot of places yeah and uh new orleans is 13 feet below sea level right it's like yeah there louisiana is a special everybody. Yeah. everybody yeah yeah. So, you know, we've, we've got a lot going on, obviously, you know, there's some public lands issues, uh, you know, that we've been working on for a while. How do we appropriately, you know, manage 
energy development out west that's both oil and gas and and renewables right you know renewables aren't without impact you know if we if we put impact uh, renewables all over the place in public lands we're gonna have to think about that too oh um, yeah you know the the fact of the matter is and i know i'm preaching to the choir here with with you aaron you know if like getting people to care about conservation issues is like can you just boil it down to one answer like just one thing and if we fix that then everything's fine and it's just not the case right it's like everything it's got to be a holistic approach i mean everything is tied to everything and so seldom is there one fix and one answer i've never seen it yeah it's nuanced like a lot of these things and we need to all get better at nuance right these things aren't black and white because someone's a republican or democrat or whatever doesn't mean you don't agree with them or doesn't mean you can't work with them i really keep trying to promote talking to the people who appear not to uh, agree with you right and and let's create some bridges and unite our country and think of it as one big community with a lot of problems that we all got to attack so uh, i think that's our job right now appreciate what you guys are doing too i think you're you're doing a lot of that you know you're bringing people in from all different walks of life and introducing them to hunting in a cool way and fishing. And, uh, we appreciate that. You, you have any parting shots for me, Cal, anything you want to leave us with? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I think we've been uh, big appreciators of the national wildlife federation. Well, oh, excuse me, big appreciators of national wildlife federation for a long, long time. And you want to see, uh, NWF, keep doing what it's doing and we'll certainly keep up our end of the bargain too you know um i think if you know i can kind of boil my approach down is i the best things in my life have come out of public lands and and public wildlife and i think it would be very disingenuous for me to start walking down a road that wouldn't give other people the same opportunity I had, you know, and I grew up in a lot of lean years as far as like elk in the state of Montana and, uh, all the better for it, you know? So good opportunity doesn't always mean a elk in the back of the truck. Um, cause you're going to be learning a lot out there. And I think, we just need to keep that perspective of good times in the woods come at you from a lot of different angles and they're not uh, punching the tag at, at the end of the day, but certainly want a reasonable opportunity to do so as well. Yeah. Great, great promotion of kind of thinking of as holistically, you know, I, I try to implore hunters and anglers to get engaged in a lot of conservation. You know, I, I keep saying it's, it's damn hard to find somebody who knows a landscape better than someone who gets up at four in the morning and trudges out there as quiet as can be. And, you know, does that year after year, often in the same landscape. So we've got a lot to offer. I, I just can continue to implore folks to get engaged, talk to your local game commissions, your, your state legislators, your congressional delegation. There's, there's no shortage of work to do. And do it if you can. Um, so, and and we're we're gearing up a little, Ryan. Too, uh, you know, I'm about to hire a, a communications person, so we'll have some more good products 
from that. So nice. If you know anyone, if you know anyone who's looking for a, a nice communications job, let me know. Uh, but uh, with that, I guess I can say happy trails, and, and we'll see you down the trail. And good luck, and keep doing doing what you're doing. All right, thanks a bunch, Aaron. It was great talking to you. All right, buddy. We are NWF Outdoors.